Psalm 104. I'm going to read verses 10 through 15. He makes springs pour water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the air nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for man to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth. Wine that gladdens the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread that sustains his heart. Today we begin a new series, having completed First and Second Peter. I don't usually give names to sermons, but for this series we will deal with the matter of a theology of food. A theology of food. Now, considering that we are going through a book on fasting during the Sunday discussion, uh, Scott McKnight's book, uh, depending on your point of view, this series might seem ironic or as there is a certain symmetry with our Sunday morning discussion. It was not planned, I assure you. The decision to go through McKnight's book was made last summer. We took a, uh, some time off and we decided when we came back in September that we would go through his book. Why do this series then? Well, a book came to my attention, uh, came out last year. It's by uh, Norman Wearsby called Food and Faith, A Theology of Eating. The author was interviewed by Ken Myers on the Aud- Mars Hill Audio Journal, which, to which we subscribe and we have copies, and it is a ministry that we support. Just was very much intrigued by the things he had to say in the interview and so purchased the book and thought it would be a profitable thing for us to study. I will tell you that my enthusiasm, though, was tempered by the sentiments expressed by Stanley Harawas, who is also at Duke. He wrote in the foreword, I must confess I did not want to know much of what I learned by reading this book. The painfulness I found in reading this book resides in my desire to remain ignorant. And in fact, I think when it comes to a theology of food, if we, would, if we could have our way, I think we would prefer to be ignorant and just continue doing what we've been doing all our lives. The reality is that we need to understand is that embodied practices sustain Christian virtues. We're learning this as we go through the matter of fasting. Embodied practices mean practices that we do with our bodies, and we are embodied creatures. We aren't just souls that are somehow imprisoned in flesh. This is who we are, uh, body, soul, and spirit. Uh, Not that we are tripartite, three parts, but there is a part of us you can see and a part of us that cannot be discerned by the senses. So today we begin by looking at a theology of food. Those of you who know me or have been listening to me for some time, you know that the first sermon of a series is something that I often dread, as it's usually background material and uh, introductory material. Um, And I don't know what it is, but usually we seem to have a precipitous drop in attendance. It is as though people know, oh, it's the first it's the first sermon in the series. Stay home. Um, I think that the material is important, but that's me. Um, 
my concern is that oftentimes it might end up being more like a lecture as we're giving all this historical background and stuff before we actually get into the text. Today's is an introductory sermon, but I think it is vital to our understanding of a theology of food and of eating. And I trust by God's grace it will be beneficial and edifying. Let's begin with this premise as we start our series. Eating food is the most fundamental practice for all human beings, indeed for all living creatures. Okay? Eating food is the most fundamental practice for all human beings. And just think a moment, if you could back away and just think of the Bible in, as you go across it. Consider how often eating is associated with events of the highest theological and spiritual importance. From the beginning of human history to the end of human history, eating is a profound part of the story. Consider the first chapter of the Bible. After the creation of man on the sixth day, we're familiar enough with what God said. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every living creature that moves on the ground. This, I think, we know fairly well, known as the dominion mandate, that mankind is to have dominion. But what about what follows in verse number 29? Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And that's where we begin. But then let's just hit some of the high points of the place of food and eating in Scripture. The arrogant eating of rebellion that led to the fall of mankind. The meal of Passover signifying deliverance. The miraculous eating of manna in the wilderness for 40 years. The changing of water into wine. The miraculous feeding on a number of occasions of thousands. What about the Lord's Supper? The post-resurrection appearance of Jesus in John 21. We read in verse number 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. In Revelation 19.9, then the angel said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. Communion with God and eating, the eating of meals is not really separable. We are created as physical and hungry beings. God's provision for body and soul are mystically united. In studying this issue with tremendous help from Wearsma's book, I think three issues are critical to our study, and they will be the focus of what we look at today as foundation for this series. The Trinity, creation, and then theology. After all, a theology of food and eating. I'll start with theology first. It's a word that raises various specters and frightening apparitions. It seems that theology divides congregations rather than uniting brothers and sisters. Also, I think there is that sense that theology is primarily about information or ideas or knowledge, something that has little or nothing to do with practice. Years ago, when I first heard about a, a movement in the Catholic Church uh, known as Liberation Theology, um, sort of the progressive wing of the church found primarily in Latin America, or that's where it started, um, it was there that I first encountered a word called orthopraxy. 
that is sort of the opposite, or not the opposite, the counterpoint of orthodoxy. That is right teaching. Orthopraxy would be right practice. And Gustavo Gutierrez, one of the leaders of the movement, emphasized practice or praxis over theology. And in a sense, he was saying theology is, you know, that it's not as important as practice. Well, Cardinal Ratzinger, who is now Pope Benedict XVI, uh, criticized liberation theology because it elevated praxis to the level of orthodoxy. We've just finished Second Peter, and if you remember, in Second Peter, uh, he writes of the danger of false teachers focusing more on their behavior, their praxis, than their lack of orthodoxy. Um, all of that to say, we might think that theology is not that important, um, that maybe we should just skip ahead to the other two matters and, and just leave theology alone. I hope that here at the beginning of this series, I hope to show you that theology is important. That is, it informs or it should inform our behavior or our praxis. I don't see one as being more than the other, more important than the other. Right belief and right practice are both important. I will say that oftentimes our belief is ahead of our praxis, our practice. That oftentimes we know what is right and we don't do what is right. But that doesn't mean that one is more important than the other. So that's the theological part. We'll come back to this. The second matter, though, is creation. The first sentence in Wiersbe's first chapter is, Why did God create a world in which every living creature must eat? Earlier I read Genesis 1.26, and then the verses that follow, 28 and 29, but I didn't read what follows. And Let me read 30. And to all the beasts of the earth, and all the birds of the air, and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. Then we come to the last verse of chapter 1. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. We must begin by recognizing that eating is originally part of God's good creation. Being hungry is not a sin. Being thirsty is not because we are sinners. They are not necessarily a consequence of sin. I would argue that Adam and Eve, before they sinned, got hungry and they got thirsty. They had to eat. They had to drink. This is the way that God has made us. Adam and Eve were needy, they were dependent, and there was an interdependence with creation, as we will see. Let me just say parenthetically, it is possible that people go hungry and are thirsty um, because of sin. That is, because of injustice and a world that is marred by famine and by drought and more. Some people do not have access to clean water, for example, and this, I would say, is a result of sin. But just the act of being hungry itself or being thirsty is a pre-fall condition. It isn't something that after they sinned, all of a sudden they realized that they were hungry and thirsty, that they'd never eaten or had anything to drink before that. Wiersbe writes in his book, Food is a holy and humbling mystery. Every time a creature eats, it participates in God's life-giving yet costly ways. Ways that simultaneously affirm creation as a delectable gift and as a divinely ordered membership of interdependent need 
and suffering and help. Whenever people come to the table, they demonstrated or they demonstrate with the unmistakable evidence of their stomachs that they are not self-subsisting gods. They are finite and mortal creatures dependent on God's many good gifts, sunlight, photosynthesis, decomposition, soil fertility, water, bees and butterflies, chickens, sheep, cows, gardeners, farmers, cooks, strangers and friends, and the list goes on and on. Eating reminds us that we participate in a grace-saturated world, a blessed creation worthy of attention, care, and celebration. Despite what food marketers may say, there really is no such thing as cheap or convenient food. Real food, the food that is the source of creaturely health and delight, is precious because it is a fundamental means through which God's nurture and love for the whole creation is expressed. It's a wonderful, a wonderful paragraph in his book. But I think we recognize that this is not the way that many, if not most people, don't. This is not the way people think about food or about eating. Certainly not the way they act when it comes to food and to eating. The character and pace of our time makes it much more likely that people will perceive the mystery of food or will receive it as a precious gift and sign of God's sustaining power. As Wendell Berry points out, and this is from Wearsworth's book, one of the great superstitions of the consumer age is the belief that money brings forth food. Money is what produces food. In reality, food is about relationships. Relationships that join us to the earth, fellow creatures, loved ones, and guests, and ultimately to God. But why don't we see this? Why don't most people see this mystery of food? In part because of how we view creation, what many people call nature. What is nature? Well, it depends on your perspective. For some, nature refers to the world apart from human activity and culture. So the wilderness is seen as some, somehow or just pristine, that that's, that's the way the world should be. It's a place where people can go and visit, but they shouldn't stay, and they're not encouraged uh, to stay there, because after all, that is the wilderness, and that's the way the world should be. I'm reminded uh, on the same uh, volume of Mars Hill Audio Journal, uh, someone spoke of the fact that people who speak of the noble savage don't consider themselves savage, in the same way that people speak of the noble poor are not themselves poor, and they don't want to be. Um, but the wilderness somehow is seen as this, this amazing place, almost Edenic uh, in their perception. For others, nature is the stage for human action. This is where we are to live out our lives. And so it is a place where we have natural resources to fuel and feed our lives, and so we can live our lives uh, as we want. In this view, Nature is somewhat uh, like a massive uh, warehouse or a massive store where you can go and get the things you need to live your life. It functions if you wish to service human needs and desires. For others, nature is the cleansing place where the pretensions and distortions of culture can be seen and corrected. So people can go to nature, sort of like uh, Thoreau, and they're discover what is essential to good human life. 
In the 16th and 17th century, as the modern age began to unfold, people came to see the world as a machine. And as such, the world is devoid of intelligence and value. It operates according to natural laws, which means you can manipulate those laws. Uh, and this is where genetics come in, uh, comes in. Um, that, that, that the world was seen primarily as being a machine. This began to change, though, toward the end of the 1700s, the end of the 18th century, in which it began to be seen not as a machine, but as sort of something that consists of social processes. Um, so in a sense, nature was not seen as fixed, but as something that was sort of always in process and always changing, always on the move. And so the nature of nature, if you wish, was seen as uh, dynamic and unfixed. It's always changing. We live in a time now where people are beginning to say about nature that it is, in fact, it has no intelligence about it. The point of it is really in question. Listen to what a Nobel Prize winning physicist wrote about nature. Not only do we not find any point to life laid out for us in nature, no objective basis for our moral principles, no correspondence between what we think is the moral law and the laws of nature of the sort imagined by philosophers from Anaximander and Plato to Emerson. We even learn that the emotions that we most treasure, our love for our wives and husbands and children, are made possible by chemical processes in our brains that are what they are as a result of natural selection acting on chance mutations over millions of years. And yet we must not sink into nihilism or stifle our emotions. At best, we live on a knife edge between wishful thinking on one hand and on the other, despair. A rather sobering and chilling view of reality. One, of the, one thing, though, that all of these things, these views of nature have in common is the belief that the world in and of itself does not have any meaning, that it is the human being's who must, in fact, somehow assign it meaning, which certainly fits with postmodern thinking. Um, you know, the meaning and purpose of the world is something that we have to sort of figure out ourselves, and then once we do that, then we can sort of assign that meaning to the world. In some ways, I almost see this as a twisted and perverted living out of God's command to Adam to have dominion and to name the animals. So there's something in us, the way that God made us, that we do want to say things about nature. But if we do not believe that God is the creator, then our views will be skewed, to say the least. So if someone views nature as a machine, something that it can be manipulated, its value is purely instrumental. Whatever view we take with regard to nature has tremendous importance and significance when it comes to how we think about food and how we relate to our food-providing world. A theological account names and speaks of the world as creation. What God has created. And such an accounting of the meaning of the world must always be articulated with reference to God. God is the source. God is the one who sustains. God is the end or the purpose of creation. 
The world is not some random accident, nor is it valueless somehow waiting for us to give it value. Creation is a concrete expression of God's love. Let me say that again. Creation is the concrete expression of God's love. Thus, theologically understood, food is not reducible to material stuff or fuel, for example. It is the provision and nurture of God made pleasing and delectable. It is the daily reminder that life and death come to us as gifts. The matter of death we will see as we go along in the series. The doctrine of creation has wide-ranging implications for how we think of ourselves, how we think of the world, how we think of our place and our responsibilities in the world. Creation, narrated from a Christian point of view, is intimately bound up in the Trinitarian life of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. This leads us to the third area that we want to talk about, and that is the Trinity. The event of or happening of creation cannot be confined to something that happened long ago at the beginning. This is a mistake that many make, let's say, for example, the deists. They see the world as a giant clock, and way back in the beginning, they would affirm that God created the heavens and the earth, and then he sort of backed off, and now the clock is winding down through human history. Creation, the place and work of divine creativity, is ongoing because God's life is ongoing. Somehow do we imagine that God has retired or at least he's on vacation until the end of time, and then he'll sort of wake up and then get things going again. If the world is named creation, and creation is narrated in a Trinitarian way, Father, Son, and Spirit, then the movement of the world, what happens in the world, must always be understood and evaluated in terms of the movement between Father, Son, and Spirit. If God creates a world, God also communicates his own Trinitarian love on the basis and goal, or as the basis and goal of created life. The love that operates between the three persons is the same love that creates, sustains, and redeems the world. One might object, however, that sin and the fall have distorted, have disfigured our relationships. Relationships that were, were originally whole and good and beautiful well, now love has come to be redefined as an idolatrous desire to possess or to control. Let's understand, sin has done its worst. It has done much to decreate the relationships of the world. But it does not have the power to block out God's presence to the world. God is ever present as its sustaining breath. God has not left us. He has not abandoned us. And we see this supremely when God took on creaturely flesh in the person of Jesus of Nazareth so that our flesh can know and participate in God's life. The goal of creaturely relationship is communion. And while life under sin is marked by fragmentation, isolation, and violent destruction, I mean, and some of these we hold up as good, that, that somehow people think it's better to be alone, to be isolated, to be a hermit, to be away from others. The witness of the Trinity says that what God intends is for us to have communion. 
to have fellowship of peace and love. You see, while the Trinity is beyond our ability to fully comprehend, the three persons of the Trinity do not exist in isolation from each other. That each one claims a certain sphere of activity for his own. And I think sometimes with theologians, to try to make the Trinity manageable, we say, well, the Father did this, and the Son did this, and the Spirit is doing this. Um, I know that that makes it easier for us to understand. But in doing that, I think we give up something and we go in the wrong direction. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit exist with each other in radical unity. or Wolf, actually, is quoted by uh, Wiersbe, in a way that goes beyond our ability to understand the divine persons are not simply interdependent and influence each other. They are personally interior to one another. That the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father and in the Spirit. We think so much in terms of individual personness that we lose sight of this. What we find in the Trinity is a mutual indwelling. This is at the heart of our reality, whether we recognize it or not. True life is lived through the gifts of others. Our experience of eating confirms this truth. It is in eating what comes from creation, we take it into ourselves. It becomes our flesh that there is this mutual interdependence and mutual indwelling. Any person or any creature that seeks to be self-originating and self-sustaining really denies all nurture from creation and ultimately will die. You did not get here on your own and you cannot stay here on your own. There is, in fact, this interdependence, this mutual indwelling. This, by the way, is why we have the commandment to honor our fathers and our mothers because we did not get here on our own. We need to be reminded of that fact. Somehow we may think, I'm, I'm independent. Uh, no, you're not. That's, that's not the nature of reality. Based on the Trinity, to be a personal creature is to be one who is from the beginning shaped and called into fellowship. Trinitarian creation means that life is founded upon an unending sharing and receiving of each other, a perpetual making room within ourselves for others to be. There is to be this give and take and this, in a way, well, it's a fellowship in which we exchange, we give gifts, we share what God has given in creation. Rather than a possession Life is a gift, and it is to be a movement of self-offering and receiving love. What I have in life is not simply my possession to have. It is a gift, and that gift is to be active. It isn't just something that's a nice wrapped, you know, nicely wrapped gift that sits on the mantle. It is something that is alive, and that life is seen in giving and receiving love. Okay, with these things in mind, Let's consider at least three questions. Why does the world exist? Why does the world exist? 
it is because of divine love, it is the nature of divine love, to make room for others to be and to flourish. Love delights in a world that by being itself contributes to the goodness and beauty of life. God did not create because he was bored. And God did not create because he needed somebody to worship him and love him. To worship perhaps, but not to love him, because there is love between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But in some way, the nature of God pushes to creation because there is this divine love that makes room for others to be and to exist. So, that's the first question. Why does the world exist? Secondly, what is the character of this world? Well, it consists not of individuals, which is the way we think of it, but of memberships. That is, joining of members to each other make life possible. And membership is not optional. You may not want to be a member of your family, but you are. Uh, Like it or not, uh, you are, in fact, a member of your family. The relationships we live through, for the purposes of this series most obviously practiced through eating, constitute, nurture, and fulfill us. This is who we are. This is who, what God made us to be. The third question is, what is the goal of this world and this life? It is to move from membership into the deep communion of love and peace. You see, it's one thing to be a member of a family, It's another thing to have a deep relationship within the membership of that family. We tend to live in ways that distort, degrade, and even refuse membership. We'd just rather be on our own. We see relationships as a burden and a threat. When we see God as Trinity, and as we fully participate in God's life, We cannot help but to move into communion. With all of this said about theology, creation, and trinity, we need to understand that a Trinitarian account of creation transforms our thinking about food. Food is a gift of love. As with all creation, food doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to exist. The fact that food does exist and that it has the potential to bring great delight. Think about your favorite food or the last great meal that you had and the delight that it brings. The fact that that is there is a sign that God made the world not out of boredom, but out of joy. To receive food as a gift and a declaration of God's love and joy is to receive food in a theological manner, is to say this is a gift from God. It is, it is something I can taste of God's love and God's joy. A Trinitarian view of creation also transforms the way that we eat. Um, and while it is true that we eat in order to live, Trinitarian-inspired eating means that we eat to share and nurture life. In its theological setting, eating 
is not reducible to the consumption of others. That fooding, food or that eating is consumption. We talked about this in the discussion earlier today. Instead, it is about extending hospitality and making room for others to find life by sharing in our own. Eating, in other words, is an invitation to share, to enter into communion and to be reconciled with each other. To eat with God at the table is to eat with the aim of healing and celebrating the memberships of creation. I think one of the central tasks, and this is why a theology of food and eating, um, rather than simply let's talk about food and eating, is that one of the tasks of theology is to guide or to guard us against idolatry. The goal of eating is not to worship food. I, I don't think that that may as, be as big a problem as much as it is worshiping ourselves, our own pleasure, our own desires. Nor is eating, the goal of eating, to offer food production and consumption to the modern idols, the idols of control, efficiency, and convenience. You don't have to think too hard, and we'll look at this in the weeks to come, that when eating becomes idolatrous, serving the idols of convenience, control, and efficiency, the result is degraded and destroyed habitats, miserable animals, insecure and abused workers, unjust trade arrangements, and lonely eaters. We must testify against the transformation of food into the exclusive, or exclusive possession or instrument of power. We must recover the sense that food is a gift to be gratefully and generously shared. So, Coming to a conclusion here. It is possible to describe food and eating in many ways, in countless ways. But from a Christian point of view, what food is and why eating matters is best understood in terms of God being Trinity and God being the creator. Trinitarian theology asserts that all reality is communion, the giving and receiving of gifts. And, and, and where does this come from? Who, who says so? Because this is the nature of God as three in one. We really don't understand food until we perceive, receive, and taste it in terms of its origin and end in God. As the one who provides for, communes with, and ultimately reconciles creation. Created life is God's love. Made tasteable. I love the way that Wiersbe puts that. Creation is God's love made tasteable and given for the good of another. The mundane act of eating every day is an invitation to move responsibly and gratefully within this given life. It, it, um, it summons us. It is a summons to commune with the divine life that is presupposed and made manifest in every bite of food that we eat. In looking ahead to what we will cover in this series, I'll give you a list of things here that I'd like you to think about in the days to come. 
First of all, eating demonstrates that we cannot live alone. That is, on our own. We, that we don't need anyone else. That we don't need God. Growing food reminds us that we did not or we do not create life. Food connects us to membership of creation and to God. And then think about what are the scope and character of the memberships of life. And then lastly, two things. When you get a chance, just sort of, don't necessarily have to read through, but if you've read through scripture, just consider the place of eating in the Bible. That which we take as mundane, we do it every day, it's something we have to do to stay alive, and yet see how significant it is in Scripture. And lastly, the place of eating in worship. If somehow we were to divide our lives up into the spiritual things we do and the unspiritual things we do, Eating and food would probably be over here and the unspiritual, the secular things we do. We make it spiritual by saying grace and then then somehow it's good. Uh, I would argue that that's not the case. It's not the case at all. And I hope that we see that as we go through this series. Let's pray together. Father, how rich is your creation as a reflection of who you are and how shallow is our perception of it that like those around us, food is seen primarily for its utility, either as fuel or for pleasure. And while we may say grace and give thanks for it, and we are thankful for it, I fail to recognize that it is an expression of your love and an expression of the interdependence that is to be found among your people, among your creation, and our relationship with you. May we in the days to come think on this. And rather than somehow burdening us or making us feel guilty, may it liberate us to recognize the wonder of the gift of food and eating and your great love for us. We pray for Henry as he has his recital. You would watch over him and help him to play well based on his practicing. For the Coburn Orchestra as they play this weekend, for Stephen in particular. For Laura and Gwen, Stacy, you would watch over them and their babies. Keep them in good health. Now, as we leave this place, we ask that your spirit and your grace would go with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.